Good afternoon and welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture on 10 years on from London 2012, the Olympic and Paralympic legacy story. I am Professor Paola Lettieri, Pro Provost for UCList and Professor of Chemical Engineering at UCL. With UCL preparing the launch of our new campus on the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park this September 2022, a campus called UCList, this lunch hour lecture will be looking at some of the work that colleagues at UCL have been doing working with communities from the east of London. And it's also to give you a flavor of the kind of research that will continue as we open UCList. So UCList is the biggest development in our nearly 200 years of history at UCL. It will give us the extra scale and space to continue UCL's research and discovery to find solutions to some of the biggest challenges facing people and the planet today. So our programs at UCList offer community engagement and research opportunities so that staff and students can have an immediate positive impact locally as well as globally. So I'm very pleased to introduce you to our first lecturer today, Victoria Austin. She's the co-founder and CEO at the Global Disability Innovation Hub, GDI Hub in short. So the GDI Hub has a really bold vision, that of driving disability innovation for a fairer world. They were launched as the 2012 Paralympic Games of Legacy of the 2012 Paralympic Games in London, which Victoria actually led for three mayors. The GDI Hub launched formally in 2016, and since then it has reached more than 22 million people. It has established collaborations with more than 70 partners and 41 countries. So Victoria was previously head of the Paralympic legacy, inclusion and sports participation at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, where she led the Paralympic legacy program pre and post 2012. And we wish Victoria good luck because she's about to submit her PhD on technology and disability justice in Sierra Leone. So looking forward to hearing your talk, Victoria. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you so much. Um, I'll just share my screen now so my colleagues can give me a shout if there's any problem. Otherwise, I'll assume you can see me well. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to participate today and particularly for inviting me to take part in this panel. It feels like um, only a moment ago that 2012 was happening. I can hardly believe it's 10 years and it's been quite the 10 years for us at GDI Hub. So today I'm just going to talk to you a little bit specifically about the Paralympic legacy. So London 2012 is often heralded as a successful event. What many people don't know is, as well as being called the most successful Paralympic Games ever by the Paralympic president, it was also the most accessible Olympic Games ever, and I believe that's still true to this day. So I want to start with a few lessons that we learned in designing the Paralympic Legacy Programme from London 2012. Um, the first lesson I learned was uh, stepping outside of the Olympic Park as the Olympics closed. I was exhausted, I had been working really, really hard with many of my colleagues and I looked up and I saw this billboard which reads, thanks for the warm-up by Channel 4. And I realised that London was going to do this a little bit differently. I realised that there was a change of tone, that a spark of change was possible, and that the innovation and, and change mindsets we tried to pump into the process from an inclusion perspective had, at least in some way, been successful. The first thing that we did to ensure the legacy of the Paralympic Games was ensure all of the buildings and the park were designed to world leading inclusive design standards. This was essential for legacy because obviously as the park comes to be used by many, many different types of people and communities, and at that point we didn't know UCL would be one of them, it's important that we had the most accessible design standards in the world. Um, and the second aspect of our legacy was to work really well with the private sector to ensure the way the facilities were managed and run also took account of disability. So many of my colleagues thought it would be more difficult to um, encourage the private sector, but actually when we made public, uh, Paralympic legacy, a scored element of the bidding process for those looking to work on the park, we found that quite a lot of solutions were brought forward to us. Like for example, the park mobility service, which you'll still see running around the park today. 
Um, the third aspect that was really important to us was to make sure that we use the power of the Paralympics to make places better for everyone. So on the right hand side of the slide, as I look at it, there's a picture of our built environment access panel of disabled people who participated in all of the planning decisions and actually had a veto and still do. Um, and on the left hand side, you'll see the same area of the park, which as it is now, which is much more open and accessible. And, and of course, that built environment access panel would be actually able to get to that area of the park now, which they couldn't previously. Um, the fourth aspect was community involvement and engagement. I think many people will talk about that today, but this started in 2005. This is um, a shopping centre, I believe it's in Walthamstow, and it's one of the early consultations we did to ask what to, what to build and make on the Olympic Park. Um, and actually that still continues to this day. The fifth element was employment skills. Um, some of you will recognise Paula, who still works in Loughborough. Um, and others of you will recognise some of the apprentices that worked on the Olympic Park, the most diverse apprenticeship workforce, I believe, in, both in construction and after and during the legacy phase. The sixth aspect was about using sport. And you might recognise the guy in the middle who had some important role this weekend. Prince Harry came to reopen the park and actually these are our power legacy agents, a group of disabled volunteers that worked with us on our sports programme Motor East that reached about a million disabled East Londoners. Um, he actually got driven in, on a recumbent cycle straight through the fountain shortly after that picture was taken and I can say he was a good sport about it. Um, the seventh element was around using culture to make sure we maintain the celebration of disability on the park and we had a festival every year for five years. And we also tried to attract major disability sporting events and you can still see a number of those events every year on the park from the wheelchair rugby world cup through to um, the, um, the disability um, athletics championships. We named an area in the centre of the park, Mandeville Place. Those of you that have visited it might recognise this pavilion that we planted and also the apple trees that came from the gold medal winning Paralympians hometowns. It's still there for you to visit. But finally, when we got to the end of the £10 million investment in Legacy, our partners were starting to question what's next. And this was a pop-up conference we held um, towards the end of that programme where we started to think about what Global Disability Innovation Hub might be and you can see Lord Chris Holmes right there who um, was our founding chair at the Global Disability Innovation Hub and so in a sense Global Disability Innovation Hub was entirely built out of the legacy of the Paralympics. We exist to, to continue that movement to accelerate disability innovation for a fair world and now we've taken our work in East London um, internationally. So what was sparked from London 2012 in terms of thinking about who needs to lead this work, how we engage with disabled people in the process, what works and what doesn't work, we've now built into to GDI Hub which is two things. It's an academic research centre located inside UCL Engineering which now hosts the World um, Health Organization's Collaborating Centre on Access to Assistive Technology. And we're also a community interest company, which also squats in UCL, which I won. Um, and now we're working with more than 40 partners in more than, um, more than 70 partners in more than 40 countries across a £50 million programme. And we've published about 150 influencing papers so far. So all that's to say, we think what we learned from London 2012 is that it's important to think really um, creatively about how we address some of these big global, global challenges. And we do that through research. We have um, a broad portfolio of research projects. Through innovation, we run innovation ecosystems across the world, through programmes to test what works, through teaching our master's programme that we run on the park jointly with Loughborough um, and uh, London College of Fashion, and through advocating for change. And um, it's through those programmes that we've been able to develop the kind of partnerships that we have. So I wanted to give a flavour of who we're working with and how we're doing that now. In the top left is a picture of our students on our master's programme, Design, Disability and Innovation. They're hanging out in um, here east at the moment, ready to move down to the south of the park as soon as the doors are open. Um, and it's just a flavour of who's coming to learn and learn from each other and, and teach us as well um, in the work that we're doing. In the bottom left is a, is a gang we're working with in Sierra Leone on access to assistive technology and slum settlements there. Top right is our team leading innovation work in Nairobi, Kenya for the world's first innovation AT um, accelerator. And bottom right, you can almost see Cathy Holloway, yeah, you can see her at the WHO with the team that helped write, write the World Report on Assistive Technology, um, which was published last week. Our big programme is now access to assistive technology and we work on a number of different um, sections under that programme. Um, so far, as Paula said, we've reached around uh, 23 million people um, 
in the work that we've tried to do when we've been able to match fund the UK aid investment um, to the tune of 13 million. So we've tried to ensure that by partnering with organisations who are able to bring their own resources, we're able to amplify the work um, that we learnt how to do in London 2012. Um, we've now got more than 63 partnerships in, in many, many countries, as I mentioned before. And this is the type of work that we do. We're trialling and testing new products. This is a new type of prosthetic, which is being um, fitted in Mombasa. This product is a new type of thermoplastic that's able to be moulded in situ and therefore doesn't need many, many trips to, um, to, to clinical settings. We're um, supporting innovation ecosystems through um, the Innovate, Innovate Now programme in Nairobi, as I mentioned. We're um, investing through our Assistive Technology Impact Fund in companies like Koala, who are operating here in Sierra Leone with a brand new type of clip-on ski boot style prosthetic. And we're mapping assistive technology markets. So this is a piece of work we've done to raise the profile of access to assistive technology around the world. And we continue to work with partners like Loughborough, um, and this is uh, an indication of the programme we did on sport against stigma, using the power of the Paralympic Games by screening it in 47 new countries for the first time last year. And also the built environment. So coming back around to what we um, think about in the beginning, walking around in the type of settings that Mohammed walks around in every day on a prosthetic from 2008 is obviously something that we'd like to um, eradicate from people's everyday existence. And finally, I just wanted to include this slide because the idea of recognition is something that we're really um, committed to with regard to disability justice. Being recognised and being seen is something that the participants in this study told us was really important in accessing assistive technology. Um, and again, we've worked with many, many communities around the world on community participation projects too. And so I guess as we've grown our work and thinking, we've been able to work with global partners like International Paralympic Committee and others. And you may have seen this We The 15 video, which reached 4.5 billion people um, over the summer for the Tokyo Paralympics. I haven't got time to play it, but do um, have a Google. It gives you an example of the type of work to address stigma that's starting to um, take hold that really started with London 2012. And then just last week, as I say, we launched the World Report on access to assistive technology. And I couldn't not include this slide with um, our lovely new provost on the left hand side, helping us launch that in Parliament with the Minister and with the WHO too. So we're, we're really proud to be the WHO's first global collaborating centre on access to assistive technology. And that's something we've only been able to do because of the work we started in London 2012. We can't wait for the doors to open um, shortly um, towards the end of the summer. But if you wanna catch up with us before then, we do try and put quite a lot of our work, including some of our experiments and live research sessions on social media, so you can follow us there. Um, and to conclude, I just wanted to say, we, we did some work last year to, to map um, the, the disability inclusion journey of London 2012. We did a Delphi study with some participants that, that, that built consensus on what works and what has been necessary in order to drive disability and inclusion for 2012. And, and this doesn't pretend that everything's perfect and disabled people living in the UK and around the world don't have issues. That's definitely not what we're arguing. But what we are arguing is what was absolutely fundamentally important is taking the community leadership of disabled people from East London and placing it front and centre of what was needed. Um, and it's because of that and the backing that that had by a number of institutions and organisations and mayors of different flavours that we were able to drive change. And this is a model that we're working on um, in our other projects around the world now. So thank you. Um, it's a very quick counter through uh, what has been a lot of work over the last decade, but we're really happy to be part of the UCL future story and we can't wait to get into the new building and do even more hard work. Thank you, Victoria. That was absolutely fantastic. So I would like now to introduce our second speaker today, Dr. Saffron Woodcraft. She's a principal research fellow in the Institute for Global Prosperity at UCL. She's leading the Prosperity in East London 2021-2031 longitudinal study looking at the social and economic impacts of Olympic regeneration on communities, in particular in Newham, Hackney, Tower Hamlets, Waltham Forest, Barking and Dagenham. Saffron works in a collaborative fashion with the citizen scientists, with community organizations, government policymakers, and businesses, so to make decision to bring basically local understanding of prosperity into the planning and decision-making processes. So Saffron, over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Paola, and uh, thank you very much to the UCLE's team for um, the invitation to join this session. 
Um, uh, like Victoria, I'm going to give a very quick overview of uh, seven years of research that's been undertaken so far and a bit of a look forward to the longitudinal study, uh, which Paola mentioned, which is going to run over the next uh, decade. Um, so I'm going to talk about a long-term programme of research. It's called Prosperity in East London. Uh, it's been running at the IGP since 2015. Um, and what this work is doing is looking at legacy regeneration from the perspective of local residents. Um, and the work asks three questions. So the first is, uh, how does our understanding of legacy change when communities are the ones to identify what matters to their prosperity and how regeneration outcomes should be measured? Um, second is, uh, how can that research and knowledge, which is co-produced with residents, change regeneration planning and policy um, in East London in order to benefit local communities? And then as we move into the third phase of the work, which is the longitudinal study, which is going to run over the next uh, 10 years, we're going to be looking at the hyperlocal um, impacts and outcomes of Olympic regeneration. Um, so focusing on the spatial and socioeconomic distribution of uh, benefits in neighbourhoods that have had large scale population uh, change. And I will say a little bit more about that um, as we go through. Um, so just very quickly, what do we mean by legacy? Um, the promise of legacy beyond the games was a really important part of London's Olympic bid um, and legacy commitments included um, Im impacts on sporting participation, health and the economy at the local, regional and national uh, level. Um, IGP's research focuses on the legacy promises that relate to regeneration um, and to uh, the benefits of regeneration for the East London communities that hosted uh, the games. Um, so you can see on the slide that legacy commitments have evolved um, over time, um, but although the wording has changed and the way of measurement and kind of framing these, these uh, commitments has changed, um, they centre primarily on the socioeconomic, uh, on socioeconomic transformation um, that is intended to address uh, long-standing and very high levels of deprivation and inequality um, in East London. Um, uh, the strategic regeneration framework or the convergence framework, um, which I'm just going to talk about very, very briefly, um, identified legacy progress measures um, that are organised around three key themes. So creating wealth and reducing poverty, so by measuring employment and educational attainment um, improvements, supporting healthier lifestyles, developing successful neighbourhoods by measuring housing provision, crime and transport. Um, and these uh, progress measures were last published in 2017. Um, uh, so if we look at different sources of data, if we look at labour market data um, uh, over the last decade and what's changed on these terms, we can see that at the borough level, so for the uh, Olympic uh, host boroughs, um, uh, this data shows there have been increases in employment, a reduction in the number of workless households, a steady rise in weekly earnings and a reduction in deprivation um, since 2012. Um, but if we look at a neighbourhood level, so if we look at the local community level, um, then we've got quite a different picture. So levels of deprivation remain very high in communities on the Olympic fringe and they're highly localised. Um, so focused on areas like Hackneywick and Custom House, uh, for example. Um, population change accounts for elements of income growth in terms of uh, new types of households moving into the area. Uh, local job growth is in low wage and low security jobs often and uh, housing costs play, or high housing costs, play a very important role in, um, in work poverty. Um, so the sources of this data are um, ONS labour market uh, statistics. Um, so in a sense, uh, this isn't surprising. We know that socio, the socio-economic impacts of regeneration are highly uneven and create uh, uh, particular forms of exclusion. These findings are well documented in research about regeneration uh, processes um, in various different cities, but in East London in particular, um, work by our colleagues at the Bartlett, so Michael Edwards and Mike Racco, for example, uh, by Penny, who's going to be talking later on this morning, um, among others, have been following this process for um, a number of years. Um, but if we know this then, um, how can we develop different approaches and models that do benefit local communities? And um, this is where IGP's work is focused. Um, and this is, uh, this is really the, um, the goal of the prosperity in East London uh, study. 
Um, and our starting assumption for this work is that if we have different forms of policy relevant knowledge, um, then we will frame problem, problems differently and be able to de develop different kinds of solutions. So uh, in brief, um, the Prosperity in East London study has been asking these two questions over the last uh, seven years. So what changes when communities are part of the research team um, and what is the impact of this kind of knowledge on uh, planning and regeneration policy? Um, and we've been doing this work by uh, training residents um, to work as part of the research team um, and developing new partnerships um, that involve residents and local communities um, and bring them into uh, planning and decision-making processes alongside uh, local authority partners, alongside uh, the GLA, alongside voluntary sector organizations and other stakeholders that have an interest in East London's uh, uh, future prosperity. Um, and we call that partnership the London uh, Prosperity Board. Uh, so between 2015 and 2017, uh, we ran the first two phases of this work. So recruiting and training 20 people from local communities to work as citizen social scientists. So they were involved in designing research, carrying out research in their communities um, and ex exploring both what prosperity means in local terms, um, but also what supports and what prevents people from living a good life, as well as how Olympic regeneration is impacting on people's experiences. Um, and opportunities. As you can see in these uh, pictures, uh, some of our citizen scientists, Jonathan, Natalie, and Tony, involved in this work. Uh, so these first two phases of work collected over 250 um, interviews, so in-depth qualitative research uh, with uh, people from a range of different backgrounds, ages, ethnicities, um, in neighbor neighborhoods, um, in and on the fringes of the Olympic Park. Um, and what you can see in this slide um, is the 10 most common themes to emerge from these interviews. Um, so the purpose of this work was to understand what matters most to people's prosperity in order to be able to bring different kinds of evidence into uh, regeneration uh, planning. Um, so um, I won't go through all of this, but I just wanted to kind of talk through briefly the first uh, five points here. So what people said was most important to their prosperity was first of all, a secure livelihood, second, good quality of life, third, being able to stay in the neighborhood uh, where they live. So this anxiety about, about displacement and dislocation links back to um, some of the, uh, the uh, kind of longstanding impacts of regeneration that, that have already been identified in um, research. Feeling part of the community is the fourth and being part of changes in East London. Um, and I want to draw attention to these because they're quite different um, to um, some of the, uh, uh, to the way that legacy promises and legacy policies have been framed with a focus on job growth, for example, or educational attainment or housing uh, provision. Um, so we get quite a different picture um, if we involve uh, residents and take lived experience as a starting point for understanding what uh, matters to prosperity. I'm not going to talk through this slide because we don't have time, but I just wanted to draw attention to um, uh, the London Prosperity Board website, where there's a lot of information about the development of this research over the last seven years, um, including uh, stories that have been put together by the citizen scientists, um, an analysis um, and, and a much more detailed discussion of the prosperity themes that I just introduced, um, as well as um, reports and uh, survey data. What I did want to talk about very briefly, though, is the idea of uh, livelihood security. Um, so secure livelihoods, um, uh, our research identified secure livelihoods as the foundation of prosperity. Um, and uh, what you can see here is a kind of representation of the way that people described livelihood security in the research that was carried out by the citizen scientists. And what's significant about this is that livelihood security depends on more than good work. It's about an overlapping set of resources, services and connections that people need to thrive. Um, so regener regeneration planning that focuses only on job growth and housing provision uh, rather than looking at this com the complex connections between work and housing, housing and public services, social inclusion and economic inclusion are, um, are never going to deliver on the Olympic legacy goals. So this is the kind of uh, work that we've been exploring with the London Prosperity Board, um, how we can bring, how having uh, residents as part of the research team 
brings a different perspective, how we can develop new concepts and how those concepts can be brought into uh, future planning. Um, just very briefly, uh, what you can see here is uh, um, a visual representation of the work that the citizen scientists have produced. Um, so looking at the 15 determinants of prosperity that, that emerged uh, from that qualitative work, which uh, we are now using um, as the basis for our uh, longitudinal study. So over the next 10 years, we'll be using this framework to uh, track changes in prosperity in local areas. Um, what's significant um, is that uh, this work has been endorsed by the LLDC board as a framework to think about um, to inform thinking about uh, legacy moving forward, um, and that a significant investment is being made in this research, not just by IGP um, and uh, UCL, but in partnership um, with our London Prosperity Board uh, partners, so with local authorities, uh, the DLA, voluntary sector organisations um, and others. Um, so the citizen scientists are part of this uh, programme, um, they're also taking part in the teaching um, and uh, the Citizen Science Academy, which I don't have time to talk about uh, today, is going to be one of the key initiatives that, that the IGP team bring to uh, UCL East uh, moving forward. Um, so thank you very much. Quick run through the work. I'm going to hand back over to uh, Paola now. Thank you, Saffron. Fantastic talk. So the next speaker to join us is Dr. Penny Bernstock. She's a senior research fellow visiting the Institute of Global Prosperity. She has uh, um, a background on the regeneration of East London for more than 30 years. So uh, we were really looking forward to your talk. Penny, she has previously directed the Center for East London Studies at the University of East London. She's published widely on the legacy of London 2012, including uh, Olympic Housing, a critical review of London 2012's legacy. Penny, over to you. Thank you. So I'm going to talk a bit today about broken promises. I'm going to go back to roll back to some of those legacy promises. So um, I'm going to focus on the gap between what the legacy housing promises were and what the housing outcomes have been. And I'm going to focus on two things. The first is that there is a lack of affordable housing on the park. And the second thing is that much of what is uh, described as affordable is not. And finally, I'm going to come on to make some suggestions to how we might get the legacy back on track. So, um, just, so, Going back to the bid, bid then, um, it's hard not to be impressed when we, we walk around the Olympic Park and we see the scale of development, um, conversion of venues for long-term use, new jobs, and the architectural quality of much of the housing. But the key question that I've been asking through my research is who is this for? And so I want to, to roll back to um, 2005 and think about one of the key promises was to regenerate the area for the entire benefit of everyone that lives there to be a model of social inclusion. And um, I think that's really, really important because it was really about, not just about thinking about regenerating space as had happened in Docklands where you had regeneration that sat in rather than connected to an area. The project, um, the legacy project is very much about connecting what happens on the park with the needs of existing communities. And I think that's where the disjuncture has been in terms of legacy. So here's a kind of chart thinking about some of the promises to just kind of remind people. So in 2005, Ken Livingstone gave a speech to the IOC in, in Singapore, and he said there'd be a huge increase in the number of affordable housing built in the area. Um, we can see here Ken Livingstone, Sebastian Coe, and um, John Biggs, GLA assembly member at the time, signing an ethical charter committing to um, community land trust housing and a range of benefits for communities. And that signature had preceded a kind of letter that had set out that there would be 50% affordable housing. But over time, there's been a kind of reneging of, of that, those commitments. So for example, in 2010, the OPLC master plan said that there would be 35 to 40%. And in 2012, the Legacy Community Scheme began to talk about a minimum of 20% of 
affordable housing on the park. Now you can imagine that 80% market housing and 20% affordable housing is a long way from kind of what we imagined back in 2005. And what I'd also say is that through my research, I can see that there is a real attempt by policymakers at the London Legacy Development Corporation to restore some of those commitments, but they're experiencing quite a lot of difficulty in doing that. So, so this slide then is trying to think, one of the biggest things is to imagine we, we look at the park and it all looks fantastic, but if you go outside of the park, I'd say that there's real housing misery and people living in some of the most extreme housing conditions. So if England has, an epi has a housing crisis, then Newham, the, one of the key legacy boroughs, is, is the epicentre of that housing crisis. And I'm currently doing some research on inadequate housing and educational experience, and it has been really shocking to see the number of families sharing bathrooms, children sharing bedrooms with their parents. So that there's a huge amount of housing need and a desperate need for uh, affordable housing. So the legacy can be answered in three kind of ways, East Village, five new neighborhoods and planning gain. I'm going to briefly touch on all of those. So this is housing at East Village. And I want to highlight one of the problems that, that we have through my research has kind of become clear. So we can see in the first pie chart, if we divide housing on the Olympic Park and the East Village, half of it is social rent, 49% affordable, and that is genuinely affordable. But the other half of it is intermediate housing, and that maps to um, the market. And over time, has values have gone up on the park has gone up considerably. And so the second pie chart illustrates the problem quite clearly. If we think about the world in one city, the multicultural nature of East London, so this is data from 2017, and it's showing that the number of white British number of people have bought houses have bought through the shed ownership on the East Village, and it's 78% white British. And yet, I checked the ONS data this morning for Newham, which is 13% white British. So you can see there's a, there's an issue there. Something for us to think about. And the issue of genuinely affordable, it, it kind of is played out across, across the park. So here we have Chobham Manor. So it's 35% affordable, but when we look at genuinely affordable in relation to people's incomes, it drops to 23%. Stratford Waterfront, sadly, um, fantastic scheme that it will be, there will be 0% genuinely affordable housing because it's all shed ownership and it's likely to have a, a minimum income of 60,000 in comparison to, to the household incomes. So, so one of the things I've been doing is studying the planning process and thinking about, well, has planning, how does, you know, one of the ways in which the LLDC can extract benefits and one of the key ideas of Ken Livingstone was that if we regenerate the area and we revalorize the land, the land values will go up and that will enable us to capture values for local communities. So um, I've been looking at, forensically examining every single planning application that has gone through planning committee since 2005 to 2021. So this is the first period and, and we can see here 19% affordable housing at the bottom here for the total for 2012. So these are all the, all the units that were approved at the planning committee, nearly four, just over 4,000 and just 19% are affordable. And if we apply our genuinely affordable test that drops down to about 500. So we can see the problem, actually. I, I've just has gone, gone you know, up to date to try and look, look as far as I can to see has there been a change. So this is data for 2017-2018. 32% um, affordable, but when we apply the affordability, genuine affordable, it's 8%, 6% in 2018-2019. But the good news is that things are changing and there has been a policy change since 2019. 2021, I think partly explained by an increase in grant aid. And, and just to illustrate the problem very quickly of intermediate housing and why it's a problem. So this is a picture on the first of people in Newham who I've been interviewing. And they tell me stories of bidding through the housing allocation system for 10 years. Every Friday they bid. But of course, there's very few properties coming forward that are genuinely affordable. On the other hand, if you wanted to get a shed ownership scheme on the park you could probably walk in today and access access a unit if your income fell below 90,000 which is the main criteria so 
what 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 can where, where's the hope well i think that the last zone if we want to kind of address some of the problems we could do something very different on the last zone on the park pudding mill rick roberts way we could we could have a housing inclusion zone where we pilot new kind of models of intermediate housing cooperative housing bottom-up community-led initiatives and i think that could help to kind of address um, some of the problems that we've, we've, we've had on the park. So, so that, that's what I think um, should happen. So that was a very quick run through. Um. Thank you, Penny. Uh, that's very interesting and a very real problem that needs to be tackled indeed. Our next and final speaker for this morning is Dr. Claire Louis. She's the director and principal research fellow of the UCL Urban Laboratory. So Claire's research has focused on the role of universities in urban regeneration, and she's the co-editor and contributor to a new book on co-curating the city, universities, and urban heritage, past and future. Clara, over to you. Thanks very much, Paola. And I'm going to just wind up this really interesting conversation um, with my fellow panelists uh, with a few words about the Olympic legacy in relation to culture and heritage on and around the park. Um, so as we know, the London Borough of Newham suffered disproportionately from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and that really opened up new questions, I think, about the intersection of public health, economic precarity, and a wide range of urban inequalities, which the Olympic and Paralympic legacy had been intended to address through the regeneration of East London. And as we start to emerge from that crisis, I think that culture and heritage have become more important than ever in discussions around recovery, healing, and future resilience in East London. And this is a theme that you can read about in um, the new book that Paula just mentioned, um, and another co-edited book, which I and Urban Lab colleagues have contributed to. And this talk really recaps some of the key points in this discussion about urban regeneration delivered by the Olympic legacy in East London, specifically some of the tensions in the capacity of cultural infrastructure, both to sustain social resilience and to drive these destabilizing urban change. To start, I think it's worth noting that culture and heritage weren't explicitly identified as significant elements in the original Olympic legacy promises for regeneration, unlike sport, housing, jobs and opportunities, a new park and transport infrastructure. And it was only after Boris Johnson became mayor that the so-called Olympicopolis emerged in 2014 as a key element of the park's post-Olympic transformation, sacrificing a percentage of the promised affordable housing quota and uh, framing an offer to key education and culture institutions to set up home on the park on favorable terms, including UCL. This subsequently became known as the Culture and Education Quarter and then East Bank when Sadiq Khan became mayor in 2016. In fact, this initiative did re represent something of a throwback to earlier debates about the regeneration of East London in the 1990s, following the decline of the docks and manufacturing. Anna Wyatt, writing in 1993, refers to an improving education infrastructure in the area at that time, but also, and I quote, a need to consolidate and maximize the collective potential of the heritage and tourism attractions in the area. And she also noted that little value was attributed to the area's character as, and again I quote, one of the most culturally diverse in Europe with a distinctive history and heritage base. And she recommended drawing attention to East London as a main focus for ethnic minority culture in London, commenting that the depth of the activities promoted by these communities are not really seen or appreciated in London. So I think these are quite interesting um, points to consider when we think about the, uh, the legacy um, of the Olympics for culture and heritage in the area. Um, at the time when Anna Wyatt was writing, the Olympics weren't anticipated as a driver of regeneration, 
But following the games, the London Legacy Development Corporation set about delivering the legacy use and community regeneration pledged for the park area and its environs, based on a broad commitment to the transformation of East London into a new focus for the growth of the knowledge economy. And this would be powered by what they called a dazzling new arts and culture cluster alongside retail business and new housing. Today, the development of plans for the East Bank Cultural and Education Quarter are the realization of that vision, and one that represents a radical transformation of the historic and existing cultural and heritage infrastructure of East London. In 2017, research conducted by Urban Lab revealed significant concerns among local community organizations that this wasn't actually in their best interests. For example, well-established local destinations such as Stratford Cultural Quarter outside the park, including the Stratford Royal Theatre, have suffered at the expense of the East Bank development. The challenges faced by small-scale local community organizations which sustain the existing cultural infrastructure are to a great extent embodied in the promises made around the concept of a billion pound culture powerhouse or culture boost bringing a huge influx of new people into the area, particularly university staff and students, as pictured in the previous slide. And local organizations said at that time that funding had been funneled towards the big players representing national institutions and identities and jeopardizing the opportunities that they've provided for many years for local people from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds to participate in the arts including dance, photography and film, art, poetry, literature, music and heritage. And this has created, they said, a significant cultural and geographical divide between the park and surrounding neighbourhoods. To an extent then, it seems that Anna Wyatt's recommendations have been disregarded. The framework for the new interventions led by the LLDC was a strategy for arts and culture published after the games, which highlighted the need, and a quote, to build on the heritage of the area by enlivening our public spaces and connecting with local communities. And it was shortlisted in 2013 for the UK's placemaking awards. But the programme focused on the creation of new permanent artworks and architectural icons, essentially. And this is in contrast to Mayor Sadiq Khan's definition of cultural infrastructure assets in 2016, as part of his good growth concept, including all manner of venues and institutions, including theatres, cinemas, music venues, pubs, skate parks, busking pictures, fashion studios, and much more. The GLA's cultural infrastructure strategy emphasised the importance of using the new London plan to protect creative workspace, heritage, and the nighttime economy in London from development. And one of the positive effects of this report was the designation of Hackney Wick, west of the park, in 2018 as a creative enterprise zone, defined as a bold new initiative for London to secure our future as a cultural capital and ensure artists and creatives continue to call this place their home, and providing some degree of security for small-scale live-work accommodation in the face of accelerated development. But in 2017, again, a new report from the London Assembly Regeneration Committee argued that while culture helps boost communities, the dangers of gentrification stemming from culture-led regeneration were very real. So I think a key problem with the LLDC's culture and heritage strategy was its dismissal of the Olympic Park's past history as an industrial wasteland or a fridge mountain, rather than as an infrastructure supporting livelihoods and social relationships. Around 600 businesses and 1,000 residents were evicted to make way for the games, while most of the evidence of the site's multi-layered industrial heritage was swept away through the remediation and decontamination process. Some of this has been recently reinstated through a site interpretation project called Groundbreakers run by Living Maps and funded by the Heritage Lottery with subsequent support from the LLDC, which has created a trail of digital hotspots across the park, which allows visitors to beam up demolished landmarks such as the Clarnico Sweet Factory and access local people's accounts of their significance in their lives. And you can read more about that 
project in the chapter co-curating the city by Phil Cohen. So just to conclude, I think this really brings us back to the question of the role played by our own university in the process of transformation of this area. And this final slide shows some images, um, a visualization of the new urban room, uh, the new UCL urban room at UCL East in the top left corner, uh, which is designed to provide a focus for collaborative public facing community based urban teaching and research with a strong emphasis on engagement with the diverse histories, cultures and identities of the local area embedded across transnational networks of migration. And we in Urban Lab, who are co-managing this space with the new School for Culture and Creative Industries at UCL East, really hope that this will provide a strong focal point, along with all of the other activities that are um, going to be launching at UCL East in the autumn, for collaborative processes of reimagining the city for the better post-COVID as part of the Olympic legacy. Thank you, Clara. We have got a few questions already uh, on Slido, and before we address those, I would like to remind uh, our audience today that they can post uh, questions on Slido using the code UCL, or in, all in capital, EAST, with a capital E. So just to give you a summary uh, before we move to the questions uh, about what we have heard today. So we've had four incredible talks very rich in content. So starting with uh, Victoria Austin, uh, who reviewed the lessons learned from the 2012 Paralympic Games, uh, when we talk about inclusive design and thinking about uh, uh, disability and the work that the Global Disability Innovation Hub has been doing to address uh, some of these challenges. And then with Saffron, we have learned more about her work on the legacy regeneration seen from the perspective of the local residencies and in particular how should we measure and track changes in regeneration and prosperity the question about affordable housing is thank you penny that it's it's very key and it's crucial when we look at projects that follow the olympic games and so your review about the planning processes and the data that reveals clearly quite a gap still today, it's important to keep in mind as we continue to learn from these projects going forward. And then thank you, Claire, for bringing us to the attention of the role of culture and heritage when we think about regeneration and so what kind of infrastructure we actually put in place. We've got a variety of different questions. The first one is to Victoria. And uh, it's what are the research areas that the GDI hub will be focusing on at UCList over the next decade that stand to make the biggest impact on people's lives? Just a small question. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you to my co-panelists. It's interesting to, to listen to you speak. Um, GDI is, um, has a number of priorities. We work on inclusive design of the built environment and we're rolling that out across um, testing in six cities around the world and working with partners such as Asian Development Bank um, and others to try and come to um, a set of principles on inclusive design that can be used in different contexts. And related to that, we've been able to do um, some work recently, including at COP, thinking about what that means for inclusive climate and crisis resilience, um, which is another of our priorities. We continue to be very committed to our work on assistive technology and also mainstream accessible technology, which has come on leaps and bounds in the last couple of years and actually is reaching large, larger numbers of people um, than we may have expected in, in previous times. And then we keep working on them um, in social development too, um, which is probably the area closest to my heart. We try to do all of our work with diverse teams, bringing in new people who perhaps wouldn't be considered experts um, in, in the old way of doing things. So we always believe that the people most affected by the issue are probably uh, as well versed as anyone in the solution. And that's part of our, um, our commitment and our work. So um, we're really excited that the lab will finally be opening. We can have all of our team in one place um, and look forward to welcoming you all in very soon. Thank you, Victoria. The next question is for Saffron, and it's about citizen science and how communities can become involved with your research. 
that's a great question. Thank you. So um, there's a number of different ways to get involved. Um, I'm just going to say a little bit about the Citizen Science Academy, which is a new uh, UCL-wide initiative that um, IGP is leading um, in partnership with UCL's Office for Open Science. So um, this is a way uh, that we are um, expanding the training and the research programs that we're offering to citizen scientists, uh, but in partnership with uh, local community-based organizations. So the Citizen Science Academy is about delivering uh, practice-led non-academic training uh, for citizen scientists in communities that is linked directly to uh, research projects. So um, it's one way into citizen science and there's a huge array of uh, citizen science projects um, underway at UCL. So the work that I've talked about is at the kind of the social science end, focusing on qualitative methods, but there are an array of uh, colleagues and projects and uh, um, opportunities to engage with both community-based uh, training, but also some of the other forms of um, uh, citizen science education and training that UCL offers, including a new uh, master's programme focused on citizen science, which will be running out of UCL East. So in the first instance, I would say, uh, have a look at the Citizen Science um, Academy web pages, um, and uh, that might help you to navigate uh, uh, UCL's kind of array of projects. Otherwise, uh, please contact me directly. Wonderful. Thank you, Saffron. Tammy, the next question is for you. What are, in your view, the successful examples that we could look at from other international Olympic legacy projects? That's a difficult question. I think that um, in terms of housing, I don't, you know, each cities have done different things. So Athens did go for a, a completely uh, affordable housing project, but I think it's a very different project itself. So it's hard to compare. Um, I think the thing with London is London promised a very clear legacy and it was the first city that promised legacy well in line with Vancouver who also do have quite an interesting affordable housing legacy in, in the city arising from the winter games and they have some very similar problems to London in terms of delivering on that legacy because of the high values of the land actually so I think that, that you know I I mean, I think it's a work in progress. Uh, so I think I, I couldn't hold up a city and say they did a fantastic legacy. Um, Vancouver did, did attempt like London to have a legacy, housing legacy, very specific part of the agreement to host the games. Thank you. A second question for you, Penny. What can be done and has been done to solve second homes driving up housing prices? As mentioned, the 78% of village buyers are white British. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of stop, I mean, the second homes is a very big problem on the second neighborhood, the first neighborhood, Chobham Manor, lots of people buying homes. And I think that they have tried to put clauses in to stop people subletting, to stop people um, uh, using their properties as Airbnb. That I think it's, it's quite, you know, I think there has to be much more stringent controls about who gets housing, but then that doesn't, that doesn't align with the market model in a sense, you know, it's those kind of tensions The developers will not want to build if they have huge amounts of um, red tape around who they can sell to and, and sadly, it's, it's a sad indictment that so many of the people buying homes do leave them empty, um, you know, these are these are second homes or third homes or you know just completely investment properties so I think more regulation but I think in a market model that becomes very difficult to to kind of implement but I definitely think we do need more controls. I think we all agree with you on that. For all speakers now what is next for East London and what hopes do you have for the future? Who would like to start? Saffron? Well, for me, uh, for me, um, uh, I would like to see uh, livelihood security become a, a kind of primary focus of uh, uh, regeneration planning and policy. So to put livelihood security, um, to make lively, livelihood security a kind of priority outcome. Um, and that means moving beyond just a kind of job growth and market-led um, housing provision model to think about uh, a much more um, kind of integrated 
Um, so integrating policy concepts that are often dealt with separately. Um, so I think there's a very strong overlap between um, the secure livelihoods uh, work that I presented really briefly and you know what Penny is saying about affordable housing, those two things are really closely um, interlinked. But the other dimension of that is about public services and ensuring you know the services, the neighborhood-based uh, services that people need in order to be able to make a living are part of that um, offer. Thank you. Anything else from any of the speakers, Clara? Um, well, I would just say if you're interested in being part of a, an ongoing conversation about that, do get involved in our Olympics Legacy Conference in September, which Penny, Saffron and I are coordinating um, with Juliet Davis from the Welsh School of Architecture, Anna Minton from UEL and Sue Brownell from Oxford Brooks. And we're very keen to hear from anybody who would like to contribute that uh, to that um, and from you know, a, a wide range of voices. I think that would be a great opportunity to hear more about what other people think or hope for um, for the future in East London. Thank Get you. in touch with me at Urban Lab or, or Saffron at IGP. Thank you, Clara. Do we think we've got a lot to look forward to. Um, we've got, um, you know, all of these, I've visited many host cities and bid cities and, you know, there's always compromises about how, what, what the priorities are, what gets translated, what gets politically accepted, what gets backed, what gets funded. And we've discussed some of those compromises today. I think what's really exciting um, coming forward in East London is that we're still seeing more homes being delivered. We're still seeing more jobs being delivered. Having UCL open its doors in Stratford is a phenomenally game-changing thing. Um, and as someone who, uh, his family is from East London and would never have believed this is what was going to happen to East London, it feels, it feels quite important to, to really celebrate those successes and think about, um, you know, the, the access that young people from East London will have to the universities that are opening. And I think it's our job to make sure that becomes a reality. So from GDI Hub's perspective, we're excited about things like the Good Growth Hub, which is supporting local businesses, about the Shift Innovation Network, which is the, the, the UK's first inclusive innovation network. And we're excited about thinking about what we can do, um, opening our doors as well to, to local people and local communities um, as we design sort of new technologies and, and, and new approaches. Thank you. Penny. Yeah, I, I would really love to see the next 10 years as UCL comes and brings lots of its knowledge um, that we turn out, turn our minds really building on what Saffron said is, is how do we do regeneration that's joined up that, that thinks about what is the deal what kind of ways do we want people to be living you know how do we create economies that are inclusive and, and you know we have a cost of living crisis and building lots of expensive housing on the olympic park is not going to help with that is it so it's thinking about what what's the deal sustainable regeneration that, that and, and also becomes more experimental in the next 10 years. I'd like to see much more experimental ideas about you know, bottom-up growth, about different models of governance that really do hand power down to local communities. So I think that you know, there's still the possibility to walk away with a better housing legacy than we have, a much better housing legacy, and, and, you know, and connecting up to those other issues. So that's what I'd like to see happen in the next 10 years as we go forward. Thank you. We've got time for one final question, and it is uh, to four speakers. What do you think is the role of the new student community coming to the region? Do they have a responsibility to this legacy? Are they residents or visitors? Who would like to start? <clears throat> I could say something about that. Um, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, there's always a problem, of course, with uh, student communities in cities, um, basically because student communities are quite transient and they're ever-changing. But I think the whole agenda around UCL East um, and just speaking specifically from Urban Lab and about our, our new programme, the MASC Global Urbanism, is that we want to create a framework in which um, our students can uh, really benefit from opportunities to engage directly with local communities and really become embedded in the area as much as possible uh, during the time that they're with us at UCL and that they'll take something away from that which is really valuable and will kind of inform their outlook for, for the rest of their lives I hope. 
So um, yeah, I think in that sense, the UCL East uh, development is very much part of a kind of trend in uh, university-led regeneration, if you like, which really focuses on the place-based nature of universities in specific localities. Thank you, Claire. It's two o'clock, so at this point I would like to thank you all, our speakers for today, and I would like to thank the audience for being with us. Uh, I'd like to mention also before we conclude our next lunch hour lecture that takes place on Thursday, the 9th of June. It focuses on designing for citizen science in the global north and south. Thank you.